Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 16 today. You're reading the first eight verses. Give you a minute to get there. One of the reasons I was uh, first compelled to be a Christian uh, was that for much much of my life, I actually felt kind of insignificant. Uh, growing up, um, I had a you know quite a loving home. Hi guys, and uh, but the thing is, I was a minority in my home school district, and it was a big time shift. It was like I think maybe me and. 30 other white kids in a school of hundreds. I remember being harassed a lot by students and even looking back, some teachers. I actually remember one time I was dropping off one of my black friends off at his house after school, and I remember being yelled at by a lady in his neighborhood who assumed I was on a drug deal. You guys know me, so you know that's that's not happening. guess I looked the part. But here's the thing. Generally, outside of that, I, I saw the other side. Growing up, I just saw a lot of people being marginalized. I tasted it just for a second, but I saw so many people marginalized. The, the, the stuff we're reading today, this, this is not new. This is not new. If it's new to you, you've been in a bubble, but welcome to Outside the what, what encouraged me a lot as, as I was growing up was I realized, though, that the marginalized person is exactly the type of person Jesus can use. In fact, Jesus usually works through that person first because they have nothing else here on earth to help him. Another way of saying it is this. Somebody who knows they're nothing can see Jesus as everything. Anybody else has no hope. When you know that you're nothing, then you can see Jesus as everything. So as we begin to start to wrap up the book of Mark, I'm actually going to start with kind of a light recap of the whole book from the perspective of one of the most marginalized people groups at the time, women. Quick comment first, though. It's it's often reported, I don't know if you guys, as you're reading the Bible, you probably assume that in Jesus' day, all women were kind of marginalized. That's actually not true. Roman women were actually beginning to come into their own. You can see some of them in the book of Acts being very wealthy, holding a lot of good esteem. But, but the Jewish women among them were really different. Jewish people were kind of mashed into Rome, kind of tucked away in a corner. They were marginalized, and they were treated poorly. And do you know who was the hardest on them? It was the rabbis. It was their own preachers, their own church. Because the rabbis would accumulate wealth, and they'd accumulate power. That's exactly, remember what Jesus was going against the whole time? They would often throw helpless women right under the bus, especially the elderly, especially widows. And we saw Jesus light them up for that all throughout the book. It was great. But then they killed him for that. They thought they did. Let's just take a little look at some of the things that Jesus did for women. In chapter 5, I'm just going to leap throughout the book. You don't have to... Well, if you can keep up, great. In chapter 5, there's a woman who had a discharge of blood for a long time. She would have been shunned by the people as unclean. But she was actually praised for her faith. She came to Jesus for help. He praised her. He healed her. Uh, Later in that chapter, he actually diverts his journey to heal a little girl who probably would have had no cultural worth at that time. In chapter 6 and 8, he's feeding people and teaching them miraculously like 
between those two, 9,000 people plus women and children. Women and children are among that. He's teaching and feeding women and children right along with the men. That, that usually didn't happen too much. In, in chapter 7, after condemning his own people as sinful, he immediately goes to Tyre and Sidon, which is like the last place you're going to go if you're a Jew. And he heals a woman there for her faith. In chapter 10, Jesus defends women and the sanctity of marriage against Pharisees who were allowing men to divorce their wives for no good reason. In chapter 12, the small sacrificial gift of an old woman is praised above the extravagant gifts of the wealthy. That would have been pretty shocking, especially that one. In chapter 14, most people know this one, a woman of ill reputation, she comes in and she takes this expensive perfume and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus, his feet, and anoints him and washes his feet with her hair. She is praised by Jesus, even while she's shamed by indignant men. They say, you could have used that for some... They wouldn't use that. They were accumulating wealth. They were just mad somebody loved Jesus. And in fact, all throughout Jesus' ministry, women ministered to him. I love that it says that. Said that in the last, uh, last chapter as Jesus died on the cross. Some actually supported him financially. Can you imagine, like, financially supporting Jesus? <laughs> it's just great. And then as Jesus died, the, the temple curtain was torn and all could enter. And rabbis didn't get this, but that would have included women too. See, Jesus valued people the world rejected. I mean, that's just the women. There's so many other people rereading the scriptures that are just rejected by the world, and Jesus just brings them in. That's who he is. Mark saw this, and he used a lot of ink to let people know. And so here we are in the epilogue of the entire book, and guess who's the first people to know that Jesus is not dead? Women. women. In other words, the least of all people have the greatest hope and the greatest mission of all. It's kind of what we're seeing today. It's what we're seeing all throughout the book, but especially today. If you're paying attention, you notice that that's, that's, that's your outline, and that's also your main point. So if you're lazy, you can just draw arrows. So the least of all people have the greatest hope and the greatest mission of all. So let's dive into Mark 15. We're going to do verses 1 through 8. I'll start with the first five. Just as a, just a recap, if you weren't here, Jesus has just been buried. And three women who were there for his crucifixion at a distance, and they watched him die, and they watched him be put in a tomb, they're now going to take care of the body of their master. Let's pray real quick. Dear God, thanks so much for your word. Would you help our eyes to be sharp, our ears to be sharp, and our hearts to be soft? Amen. So I'll read verses 1 through 5. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were asking one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very, very large. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So we have three women, and they all love Jesus very much, 
And we know that they've actually, Jesus died on a Friday and then the Sabbath, and now they get up. So they've actually been kind of simmering with the grief of the death of Jesus for the whole day because you're not allowed to work then. Kind of a mandatory day off. There will be a time when you'll hate that. Just so you know, there will be a time when you hate having a day off. Time like that. So as soon as they can, they get up before sunrise. It's not even light. Stumbling around, going to the, the tomb. And they're going to anoint their, their dead master. Let me give you just a little bit about each woman, because I think it's actually pretty important to something later on. First, we have Mary Magdalene. This is a Galilean woman. She's probably from the town of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. That's actually near the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with more of the Gospels, Jesus actually delivers her. Here's how she enters the party. Jesus delivers her from seven demons, and that's in Luke chapter 8. That's how she follows him. So you can imagine she probably had a pretty poor reputation, something like that. Imagine socially where she was at, in addition to being a woman. Next, we have Mary, the mother of James. Some actually assume this to be the mother of Jesus because Jesus' mom is a Mary, and she also has a son named James. Uh, I actually don't think that's it's the same Mary because the thing is, all these names were really common at the time. I mean, in fact, I've given you two women and they're both named Mary. How many Dans we got here? <laughs> See? <laughs> so these names are pretty common. And so she's just some Mary. We really don't know anything about her. And next we have a lady named Salome, and she's one of Jesus' followers, and she's also from Galilee. And Matthew 27 suggests that she is the mother of the disciples James and John. So we've got three followers of Jesus here. One of them is possessed by demons. And the other two really aren't that important other than one of them is the mom of two disciples who at this point are both fugitives. And none of their husbands are anywhere to be found. They're so outcast, I would argue, they don't even have the resources to do this mission. Look at verse 3. On the way, they're like, who's going to roll the stone away? They don't have that figured out yet. Thanks, husbands. <laughs> and, <laughs> and verse 3 says they, you know, they need help to roll away the stone. And verse 4 calls the stone very large. So I looked up how large the stone was. The stone was said to have weighed something like two or 3,000 pounds. I don't think it might have mattered if the husbands would have came or not. And actually, if you know anything about how the, the grave system was set up for this particular scenario, it would have been this big stone would have been in a notch and kind of thunk set in there and cut to fit. So no air would go in or out. It was a good way of preserving things. So imagine a cork in a bottle, and the cork is 3,000 pounds. That's what we have here. And so these women, who are nothing, are on a mission that they can't even accomplish. That's what we have here. This is hopeless. But then, then the women look up and they see that the stone has been rolled away. Now, if you saw that, if you were them and you saw that, what would you think? How would you be feeling? Would you be jumping up and down? Maybe? See, you'd probably think that this was the point in the story where their sorrow turned to joy, but it totally doesn't. 
Is that we need to remember something. We, we just apply. We, we imagine that they're all walking around with ESV Bibles at this time. They're not. It's being written right now. They don't have the Easter story as a reference. They see a man. They go in. They see a man. They see the stone roll away. And they see nobody of Jesus. And it says they're terrified. This man is dressed in white. And he's sitting right near where Jesus would have laid. And you know, Mark doesn't tell us exactly how these women are kind of assessing the situation other than they're terrified. But given the possible options, my guess is that they probably think the body of Jesus has been abducted. That's probably what they're thinking. I mean, what else you got? Either way, foul play. That's probably the guess. And another reason I think they're probably terrified is that if it were foul play, these women couldn't have done anything about it. See, remember when I was talking earlier about the Jewish women, how they were pretty marginalized? Their testimonies, even the three together, would not have been accepted in court. Just didn't work that way. So what are they going to do? I think what's amazing is that that, their weakness, their their marginalization, their, their insignificance is actually the very reason why it's so amazing that they're here for this. That they'd be the first witnesses of what would happen next. God's actually going to use their nothingness to accomplish something really amazing. Point two, have the greatest hope. That's what they're going to get. Let's do verse six. And the man said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? That's it. It's going to be one verse for this section. It's not very long. So this man, dressed in white, some would call him an angel. The first thing he tells him to do is not to fear. He's probably picking up on some of that. I don't know if you've ever seen three women afraid. Kind of obvious. Here's the thing. This guy's words... That should actually bring comfort to anybody who's familiar with the Old Testament. Because do not fear is the most common command given by God to his people. One more time. Do not fear. And the man's reasoning is this. You seek Jesus, so he knows why they're there, who was crucified, so he knows what happened, but he is risen, he's not here. And then he probably motions down or maybe points at where Jesus would have been laid. And he says, see the place where they've laid him? So he clarifies why Jesus isn't there. And if we can just pause for a moment, with just the word risen, assuming it's true, they don't really know it's true, we do. Just with the word risen, everything changes for these women. Because it means Jesus is who he says he is. So the word risen changes them too. Let's just go back through these three women. Mary Magdalene, who just a few moments ago had possessed by demons as like the high point in her resume. She's now somebody who's seen God in the flesh. That's different. Mary, the mother of James, is no longer a nobody because she knows Jesus who is in all and through all and is throughout all time. And Salome is no longer the mother of two disciples working for 
criminal. She's actually the mother of two men who were discipled by God himself. Could you imagine her? Those are my boys. I read the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible to my oldest daughter, Rosie, every night, and I, I like what it says about this moment. It says, everything sad was becoming untrue. Everything sad was becoming untrue. And even more than that, it's not just that these nobodies get the greatest hope of all. They're actually sent on the greatest mission of all. Point three, we're going to read verses seven and eight. This is the man continuing to speak. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So their mission is to go, a.k.a. this man identifies their fear, but then he just sends him anyway. <laughs> There's no counseling session. He just sends him. And here's their job, to give this news, he is risen, to the disciples who you can imagine need a lot of hope. Isn't it crazy why he says, tell the disciples and Peter? Was that like a burn? What was that? Peter's kind of isolated by name. If you remember, Peter kind of disowned Jesus kind of three times. And this man here, in giving this news, is telling us that Peter's not done for. Tell him. I love that. Because these disciples need hope, because guess what? They're nobody's too. This isn't just about the women here this morning. You know, I don't mean this just because of the current state of things, because they're sad because their master's dead and, and not who they hoped he was. I want you to consider them as people for a minute, too. Think about Jesus' disciples, what you know of them, if you do. A bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, blue-collar guys who in the eyes of the world were picked by a dead man who thought he was God. These guys are nobodies too. Don't miss that point. Just to, I want you to imagine for a minute, just imagine a deck of cards. Should have brought one. Imagine a deck of cards. Where do you think the Pharisees are? I'd call them aces, right? A lot of power, a lot of wealth, a lot of influence. What about the women? Where are they at? Maybe twos? Where do you think the disciples are? Different twos? Maybe threes? So you can imagine the tension here. Go and, and tell Peter and the disciples in, in a sea of aces? Kings? Really? Tell? Tell people? You can imagine the tension for these women. The man says, go ahead to Galilee. Jesus is there, just as he told you. And that's a two-day journey by foot. It's far, but it's, it's not that far. You can do it. You can do it in one, some people could do it in one day. If you were excited because somebody was risen from the dead, you could probably do it in one day. It's as if to say, run, your master is alive and well. All that stuff that defined you, that's gone. 
Jesus is who he said he is. But there's another tension that I need to draw out here. And I already mentioned it about two of the women. And it could also be true of the third one because we don't know a lot about her. Here it is. At least two of these women are from the area of Galilee. This trip is a trip home. They would be noticed and it would not be good. You ever go home because you're happy? Everybody knows you. Go in a restaurant, everybody knows you. Go in the corner store, everybody knows you. What if you're a criminal? You want to go home? No. And I don't know how much that plays into it, but here's what these three women do in response to the greatest mission of all. They run away and they tell nobody. That's kind of anticlimactic. Why does Mark end their story this way? Why is this kind of the last we hear of them? That's it? That seems so weak to build up to this amazing climax and then they just kind of run. Why do these women not speak? There's actually more to this kind of abrupt cutoff. And, and Reese, Reese, who's going to be recapping the whole book next week, he'll maybe give you a little bit more there. But why, on this glorious morning, does the mission end with these words? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why does it end that way? One commentator had a theory that I think makes the most sense. He wrote this. It was as though the author, Mark, put down his pen, looked up at his audience and said to a church full of nobodies, will you be silent about this risen Jesus too? Or will you speak? Because this book, Mark, was written 10 or 20 years after the destruction of the temple. This is like 50 years after all this stuff happened. And the Jews have been exiled, and of course the Christians, they're kind of scattered. These nobodies are now exiles, and Mark's writing to them. You're going to be silent too? But they've been sent into the world by the hand of God, and those words about 60 years later at this point, are still true. He is risen. Go. And they're still true now. Now, there's a huge implication in this that kind of rattled the church then, and I think it does now. And it's this. God loves using the least people. I mean, think about it. This is why, if you've ever read the book of Acts, Peter gets up, he gets restored, and he preaches the sermon of a lifetime. And people are astonished. And they give glory to God, and thousands get converted in one day. That'd be cool. It's because the least of all people had the greatest hope and the great mission of all. Greatest mission of all. What blew away people in the book of Acts was they look at Peter and they say, This guy's uneducated. This guy didn't go to seminary, this guy didn't go to college. So I'd like to focus on one application for you this morning, church. You ready? Write it down. It's pretty long. You ready? You know it's not going to be long. Give it away. The application is go. Go. G-O. It took me longer to spell it than say it. 
That's when you know you got a short word. Now raise your hand. Who would like more information than that? Anybody ever hear the word go and they're like, where? When? Should I take, should I take pants? <laughs> you know? But go. That's all these ladies got. And you know what? When Jesus actually did rise and was appeared, and he sent his disciples out later, they got pretty much the same message. Go. They got a little bit more, but not much. But consider this. Look back, church, with me at the whole book of Mark that we've been reading. After hearing every radical thing Jesus said in the book of Mark, and now hearing the statement, he is risen, what more do you need other than the command to go? What more do you need than that? We don't need more information. In fact, I'm going to argue that our problem is we usually have too much information, and it's wrong information. Here's the information. We assume we know the future. Because when I say go, and you kind of, anybody kind of hesitates, you're thinking, but, 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 you know, what's going to happen? Have you ever tried a ministry initiative and it just kind of falls flat? A couple of those. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe you're a little timid growing up. And so every step outward seems like a risk. Is that you? Because you know, people are going to hurt you when you do that. You step out. But here's the thing. Say you try some outreach event. Say you try to go, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. What do you do with that? Well, you can remember two things. Number one, God knows the future and you don't. So he might use your little efforts in an awesome way that you never see. And that's funny. That's enough. I actually had a friend named Mike who uh, he was reached out to by a friend. He was not a, not a Christian. And a friend of mine named Joel was reaching out to him month after month after month, and nothing happened. And Joel graduated, and he thought, ah, well, nothing. He, he reached out for like three years, and nobody became a Christian. And he just kind of graduated college and kind of left. And that fall, Mike came back, and he was just like, I don't know. I'm, he's interested in Jesus now, and he becomes a Christian. Now he's like one of the best leaders I've ever seen. Joel didn't get to see that. Well, he saw it later, but he graduated in faith and said, I'm going to just preach and whatever happens, happens. And something really cool happened. That can happen. So Jesus knows the future and you don't. That's an encouragement. Here's the second thing. Second, since the command stands to keep going, you can just keep trying. You know, it's not go once. It's go. Keep going. So consider, for example, this initiative. Tom mentioned it a couple of times recently about ministering to the homeless. You guys heard that? There are a lot of opportunities to minister to the homeless. You know, we're going to try doing some stuff as a church. And Tom just kind of threw it out there. You know, pray about that. Think about inviting them in. Think about inviting them into your house. Perhaps maybe helping an entire family get back on its feet. Will that inconvenience you? Maybe. Probably. 
You don't know for sure. Will it test your faith? Maybe. Will the family all come to know Jesus and become missionaries? I don't know. You don't know. Maybe they'll just learn to trust the church. Is that enough? Is that worth opening up your home for? Help a family know the church? Trust the church? Consider this vision. Just think about this vision as you're thinking about stuff like that. If a homeless family doesn't know Jesus, they have all the pain of being marginalized and they have none of the hope of heaven. They have all the pain of earth, none of the hope of heaven. And you can do something about that. So maybe reaching out in that way is your go. Maybe that's your go. But maybe, you know, maybe as I'm kind of saying the word go, maybe you're thinking something like, ah, oh, you know, and I'm, I'm drawing out all the struggles. Maybe you're thinking, you know, you're right, Dan. I'm, I'm, I'm just afraid. I don't know if I can do this. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do a Bible study on fear and I'm going to work this out and then I'm going to go. No. I mean, you can do a Bible study, sure. But don't wait. Don't wait until everything's correct. Because I don't know about you, but when I study the Bible, usually I get encouraged in some ways, but then I think of like, oh, there's 10 more sins I do. You're not going to walk away from the Bible study feeling perfect. Just go now. Here's the thing, though. Even in your fear, look at the empty tomb. That's your hope. Not just, I can do this. Not just, I can make a difference, but... He is not here. He's risen. That's your hope. And that'll that'll keep you going. In fact, if you don't keep going, you're probably not looking at the empty tomb. You're probably laying in it. God is faithful even in your fear. And I'll wrap up with this. Because when you fear, when you're afraid to go, you're probably tempted, in fact, to pull back. You don't just stand there. You go the other way. Because fear tells you something loud and clear, and it's actually true. Fear says you are not qualified to do this alone. You can't do it. That's true. But here's the hope. If you're small and afraid, that's actually really fantastic because then people won't see you. They will only see Jesus. People won't see you. They will only see Jesus. So if you're small, great. If you're big, get smaller. Too big. People can't see Jesus. I'll close with this. In the garden before his death, Jesus, on the greatest mission of all, sweat drops of blood for the pain he was about to suffer. That was his go, so to speak. And the book of Hebrews says, He walked with us in every way. Jesus knows your fear. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit not long after this story to help you go. So though the world might reject you, here's your hope. You are small here, but you are approved by the one who made the world. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for what we see here in Scripture. Lord, I thank you so much that though you're not present in this portion of Scripture, in a bodily way, you are very much present because of what your mission represented. That people who were marginalized and small by earthly standards could actually be called to something so much greater than themselves. Lord, when they ran, 
the mission still went forward. So Lord, help us to enjoy, not in, in, in response to this, not just sit there and say, well, it's going to go forward anyway. Help us to say, what can I do? And then help us to do it. Amen.